Hey, what's up? It's Brad from The Heckler. How are you? Do you ask that when you start a podcast? I don't know. Anyway, um, we have a new edition of Fans in Cool Places Drinking Beer coming out. Uh, this is another interview we did at V's Barbershop in Wicker Park, um, owned by a good friend of mine, Scott. He was kind enough to host us. Um, this interview is with Scoop Jackson, longtime uh, writer, reporter for a variety of publications um, and outlets. He's at ESPN now. He was an integral, integral force in uh, with Slam Magazine when they were coming up. He uh, works on marketing campaigns like um, the Colin Kaepernick campaign. It was uh, a really great conversation. We tried to, uh, you know, we talked about some things that were not extremely comfortable, but I still found them to be enlightening, and I hope that you agree. Um, in addition to audio being available here, we're, we've got videos that are going to be going up um, from the uh, interview um, that I found to be rather enjoyable, not just because I was in it with my co-host Ethan, but uh, it was cool. So, in uh, other heckler news, um, just returned today from our 15th annual spring training trip out to Mesa. It was a pretty amazing time. We had um, a lot of people with us. Um, on the Saturday of the trip, we had uh, upwards of about 100 people at our t- big tailgate out at Sloan Park, which was pretty amazing. Um, earlier in the weekend on um, Thursday, we did a pub crawl in Old Town Scottsdale after we went to the Angels-Padres game. Uh, we sat a few rows behind Joe Madden and got him to give us a hat tip, um, maybe just to shut us up, but either way, that was pretty cool. We wanted to say farewell to Joe Madden. After that, we went out to Scottsdale and did a pub crawl at three really cool places, um, Wasted Grain, uh, Hula's Tiki Bar, and then we wound up at... Um, uh, Salty Senorita in Scottsdale, which is a place we've been going to quite a bit. Very cool. They've got an awesome outdoor area in both the front and the back, which was really cool. Uh, a highlight of that trip, or highlight of that night, was um, our friends from Club 400 arranged for uh, Miguel Montero to join us, along with John Maley, who was the hitting coach in the 2016 Cubs. Um, Montero, they were both amazing. They told a ton of really interesting great stories very insightful about the game of baseball Maley is now with the angels as their hitting coach uh, reunited with joe madden um so it was pretty interesting to talk about uh, just everything with him montero uh i had never met him before but uh he was uh very um what's we're looking for i don't know uh just very, just, I don't know, knowledgeable, talkative, told us, would answer any question and, and very insightful, um, almost like a psychologist about people used to play with, umpires, all that stuff. Um, it was funny, um, when we posted that we were going to be having him, uh, join us at the tailgate, a few people brought up the incident that led to his departure from the Cubs. Um, people might remember that he, uh, after a game, uh, in which he uh, had some troubles throwing runners out, sort of in what some people thought through his uh, pitcher, who happened to be Jake Arrieta, under the bus. Um, and it, some fans, some Cubs fans, seemed to 
think rather negatively about Montero because of that incident. And he talked very openly and honestly about that incident with us, a group of fans who he didn't know from anybody, didn't, you know, but he was super cool about it. And, uh, you know, uh, explained kind of all the behind the scenes stuff with that. And it was, it was great. Um, just based on everything we talked about right now, he's not, he's spending time with his family. He's not doing a ton of stuff, but I would not be surprised if you see him coaching sometime soon. He would definitely also be, I think an amazing, uh, analyst. Um, just the, the level of insight that he brought to our conversation was just amazing. I've met quite a few, um, sports people, athletes from all different teams, sports, genres, whatever. And I found him to be, uh, among the most, um, refreshingly open and honest about everything and did not hesitate to mention any talk about anything. It was great. So that was our Thursday. And then Friday, um, we went to the Cubs played a night game. So we went to see them play out in Peoria against the Padres. Before that, um, we had a big lunch at our hotel, poolside lunch, at our hotel. That was really cool. And then, um, our friends from Sloan, um, the, who have the naming rights at Sloan Park arranged for us to get a tour of Sloan Park, which was really cool. Um, Ryan Dempster joined us. Uh, that was also uh, arranged with our the help of our friends at Sloan, and that was awesome. He was he was great. Um, I I met him a few times back in the day when he was with the Cubs, and then off and on a few times since then. And uh, I've always found him to be also uh, you know just all very similar to what you see uh, on TV. Thankfully, he spared us his. Harry Carey impression, um, but, you know, save that for a different day. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, Friday went to the game out in Peoria. That was a lot of fun. We had pretty good seats. We were too close to the Cubs dugout. Our, our group got kind of rowdy, and we got um, some reactions from some of the Cubs players. Wilson Contreras, in particular, uh, was kind of listening to us. We were mostly being cheerful uh, and happy to be close to the Cubs uh, dugout, but by that point, um, our crew had been uh, out and about for, I don't know, a good eight or nine hours. Uh, and as you might expect, we, we were a little rowdy, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, Saturday was our only game at Sloan for the core part of the trip. And we did every when, whenever we were out there, we do a huge tailgate um, and get a lot of people together. And it was it was awesome. We've been posting pictures on social media. We'll do some other recaps. Um, it's a great time. Uh, next year, we're doing it uh, the first weekend of March, which I believe is like the 4th through the 7th. And I highly encourage everybody to come check it out. You can stay at the hotel with us if you want. You can do whatever, stay wherever you want. But you can just come to our tailgates, come to the games with us. Uh, it's just a great time. There are a lot of people who have gone, you know, they go once and they've gone every year since then. You know, we had like eight or nine people who this was their fifth year. We had a person that was her 10th year. And it's just, it's just a great trip. It's a highlight of my year, and I believe it's the highlight of a lot of other people's years. So um, check us, check that out on our social media channels, um, and, and you can kind of get a feel for what that's all about. Um, so anyway, uh, on to uh, my friend Scoop Jackson. Uh, please, uh, as everyone always says on these podcasts, uh, listen, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Tell your friends, please. Um, the, the good folks at V's, um, it was a sponsorship that, uh, that got us there. So please support places like that to help, uh, us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we're really enjoying it and, uh, I hope you do too. So on to Scoop Jackson. All right. So here we go. Scoop Jackson, me, Ethan, 
from the heckler talking at V's Barbershop in Wicker Park. Lots of really good stuff in here. It's action-packed. We're talking about his new book. We're talking about the work he did on the Colin Kaepernick campaign, the Nike campaign. We're talking about sneakers, uh, lots of other stuff. MLK Day mattress sales, you name it. Uh, we're talking about it. So check it out. All right, so you've got a, you've got a new book coming out. Yes, sir. The game is not a game. Then the subtitle is "The Power, Protest, and Politics of American Sports." It's coming out in March, March I believe. Yes. This is an advanced copy. Woo! Yeah. Which I could tell you, uh, and not to embarrass you, but your other half, your better half, her uh, blurb, you know, is right prominently. Nice. Yes, very prominent on the big paragraph on the back of the book. That's that's very exciting. She'll be, and it's alongside a lot of really noteworthy folks. Yeah, who else, yeah, yeah. Who else have blurbs on the new? Who yeah. else has blurbs on the new book? Uh, Michael Eric Dyson, Stephen A. Smith, uh, Dave Zirin. Um, ooh, who am I missing? I'm missing somebody. Who's the first Sir, one? Sir Spain. Huh? Who's the first person? Dr. You said? Eric, Michael Eric Dyson. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's, some ath- there's some ath- there's some old NBA oh, players yeah, too, right? No, but we haven't. They didn't get. Of course, you know, you're dealing with athletes. They didn't get them in time, so. Supposed oh. to be Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan. They didn't make I've the, heard of all. They didn't make the cut. They didn't get those in time. No, Allen Iverson. You actually, Iverson didn't turn. He missed his deadline. Missed his, well, that's kind of on me, uh, because when I found out we couldn't do it immediately, I'm like, oh, if it's not if it's not happening right now in this moment, then it's not going to happen in time to get it to the publisher. And um, more important than all the people I just mentioned is uh, World Wide West. If you know who World Wide oh, West yeah, is. Oh yeah, for sure. Wes is like, I've never done anything like this before in my life, but I'll do it for you. That's pretty cool. He said, holler me at the beginning of the year. I'm like, okay, cool. And I was like, you know what? I should scrap everybody's blurb and just put him on. Because if you, if you see Worldwide West's name on a book, it's but like... I know who Worldwide West is, but for the people at home who don't, why don't you just you know, tell nope, them? Nope, nope, nope. You're on your own. Google it, sure. Okay. sure. You're sure. not getting it from me. Right, Google it. Google I've gotten it. in enough trouble you know, by mentioning his name. I've not read all of it yet. I did read through a significant amount of it to prepare for this interview. And um, since protest is in uh, the title, you do talk about Colin Kaepernick quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think that's a brilliant marketing strategy, if nothing else. Okay. Because um, people who support Kaepernick are going to buy the book to read it. Right. And people who hate on Kaepernick are going to buy the book to burn it. Well, was that, was that, did you think like now I'm going to, everyone's going to buy the book because of this? Well, no, I didn't think that way. I thought that there were, my approach to the book was looking at topical subject matters and finding a way that if I was going to do columns on them, how can I flush these columns into chapters? Right. So it wasn't about like the polarization of Colin Kaepernick. I said, who can I do, who's relevant right now that's worthy of uh, doing a chapter that I can research and do something and say something comprehensive that hasn't been said? And in the moment, it was Colin. LeBron James and LeVar Ball. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, so I wasn't looking at the fact that, all right, people are going to hate this book and hate that they see that Colin Kaepernick's in it and burn the book. You know, that would be jacked up because the book's not all about him. Now, if you want to rip out that chapter and burn it, cool, well, I'm good. He's, right. he's, he's sprinkled throughout, which yeah, is... He's sprinkled throughout, but LeBron James is sprinkled throughout. Right, you know, no, um, of course. Yeah, uh, um, uh, Serena Williams is sprinkled throughout the book, you know, so I'm like, you know, if you're going to... If they're going to nitpick because they hate his name that much and what he represents, fine. I mean, Donald Trump's name is sprinkled throughout the book. That's, so That's true, too. They, so Now, if we go on that route, if, we got, if we're worried about people burning the book because the name's sprinkled out and it's burning because of Colin Kaepernick, 
it's going to get burnt because of Donald Trump at the same time. So I'm, And that's why they have so many wildfires in Australia right now. So. <laughs> because, of your, because of the book? Because of the book. People are burning bricks these days. Well, um, if I get the sale first, then, then good. I don't, you know. So, yeah, but you see what I'm saying about, like, you can rip out the chapters and burn the chapters. And, like, see, this I don't want anyone to burn the book. But I know, but, I mean, hey, look, look. In real honesty, I've had that happen to me. Not books, but magazines. Eminem and Dr. Dre, like, were really pissed about something I wrote in Double uh, XL back in the day. And they went on stage and started burning. On stage? On stage, burning. What did you write? Magazine. Um... I don't want to get to that long story. It wasn't anything negative, but it wasn't anything glorifying either. Um, like Eminem, it was his free. He had just dropped Slim Shady. You know, he had been doing this thing in Detroit and Michigan and had the underground swell. But Slim Shady came out and MTV picked it up immediately and kind of blew it up. And we asked for uh, Eminem to be in the issue. And he didn't, his people said that he didn't have time to get with us before we went to print. Uh-huh. So you can, it's kind of a no comment. Yeah, but no, he was like, we, we can't get it in this time. So, okay, we'll maybe save it for next issue, whatever. But this was before the song blew up. The song blew up. They were like, hey, you know, we'd love to get him in the magazine, and can he get the cover? We're like, no. The magazine's already, we're looking at the blue lines now. It's already gone. So they were pissed. Right. You know, they're like, all right, you know, you all should stop the world. And like, no, we can't put a whole magazine on hold. And this is dealing with double XL. You can't put a whole magazine on hold just because, you know, he's the hot shit. You know, maybe next issue, whatever. And we were only coming out five times a year. So it had been a couple, it would be a couple months before it it happened. They didn't want to strike while the iron was hot. Um, And when we didn't do it and they got pissed, the publisher was like, you know what? Fuck them. I'm holding up the book. We're going to write a story about his ass in the book. (laughs) So. We did a story basically saying that he is ridiculously dope, but his popularity, the reason he got MTV, the reason he's getting on is because he's white. Oh. Yeah. All right. Cause, and we started naming all these other artists that came out, black MCs that were just as dope as he was coming out and didn't get any of this shit. Right. So, so then they lit, they lit the magazine on fire. Oh yeah, stage. They, they read that shit and they were pissed. They're like, you know. Thankfully, that was like before Twitter and stuff, because otherwise they, people would have been blowing you up. Uh, maybe, probably so. It's cool. It would, it, would, it would have been a thing. But my thing about situations like that, and the same thing you said about the book, is that if you're consistent in what you do, then you can override any of that shit. So if the magazine is good, if we do good work, that would just be a moment. Mm-hmm. It may be a trending moment. It may be a reoccurring trending moment. Who knows? It may be something that's like stigmatized with the magazine, but it won't be able, it shouldn't be strong enough to shut you down. Right. Or make people not deal with the product because that you put out there. If your product, product is good, there it is. And same thing, people don't like the Colin Kaepernick chapter in there, cool. The rest of the book, they're like, okay, I'm good with that. That's fair. Yeah. Have you crossed paths with Dr. Dre and Eminem at all? No, nah, not since then, not at all. Not at all. N- nor have I. Uh, <laughs> <you're> <laughs> That's, you and I have that in common you're then. Yeah. You're good. You, if I remember correctly, you worked on the Kaepernick Nike campaign. Yes, I did. And that sparked a lot of angry white people to like burn their old Nike, Nike shoes. Or, or their New Balances that they thought were Nikes because they had an N on them, but then they burned those instead. There were videos out there of people burning their New Balances. That's, which is, yeah, I, did, I, I thought they were burning for a whole nother reason. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's a, what was the reason they would have been burning their New Balances? I, for some reason, I read a story that the narrative that was being told was that th- those New Balance was associated with white supremacists for some reason. Oh. No, yeah. Yeah, it, it was Nothing definitely, was, no, it was, this was the Nike thing. Nothing would surprise me. Right, right, so I'm like, okay. But, uh, so... And I'm like, Kawhi Linda looks like a really dope white supremacist. I like that. <laughs> so 
I mean, I, I think that that campaign was great and it did wonderful results for Nike, but then it got these people to burn their old Nike stuff. And I think if someone, you know, is online or they go to the store and they see new Nike stuff, they're kind of like, well, I burned my old crappy Nike shoes and yeah, I'm a little angry about the Kaepernick stuff, but I'm going to go burn, I'm going to go buy. Yeah, because they're like, that shit is hot, I need to have yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But so, it goes to my point about you can override those situations if you stick right. with all dope stuff. So we got to start making products that people want to burn. Maybe we should try to think about a way we can do that. All right, I'm, on, I'm, I'm down for that. Um, I'm assuming that overall, as far as you know, the, the people associated with, with Nike that you work with on a can- campaign were probably pretty happy with the result despite the backlash. Yeah, from what I yeah, from the and what it wound up doing over the course of time. You know, that was an immediate reaction. But then if you look like six months down the line, stock rises and, you know, they're able to still have an enormous presence in not only advertising and marketing, but in, you know, sports apparel and in the business of sports. So, you know, that hit that they took from in that moment didn't affect them at all. And, and I've been with Nike and worked with Nike for a long time. And they're not afraid to go out there and take risks right. and take stances and be comfortable with those stances and understand we did this for a reason. They don't do anything in a knee-jerk matter. Everything they do is very, very measured. So I'm pretty sure they were ready for the backlash, whatever it is, but- They weren't, like, surprised. They weren't surprised by it. We'd rather take the backlash than be silent. If Nike is such a great company, though, then how come when I wear their shoes to play basketball, I still can't dunk? Hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> now, here's the deal. What Nikes are you playing in? See, that's why they have so many different styles. Remember, Maybe I, I'm going in the wrong ones, yeah. When I, was a, when I was a kid, remember LA Gear had catapults? Yeah. Remember that? They were, they were uh, Carl Malone sponsored shoes? Mm-hmm. Carl Malone played for Utah <laughs> Jazz, yeah. He's too young. He doesn't <laughs> get any of this stuff. But they supposedly would help you get it, which was funk, right? But... But, I mean, technology, well, and, and Nike wound up taking some of that, having the shock system that were in their shoes, you know, and of course you got Vince Carter in the ad campaign to sell you, and he's jumping over people, so you think yeah, you can Yeah, I'd that. buy that shoe, yeah. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. Vince Carter can dunk on like a 12-foot rim. I know, exactly. So, you know, but he's, you know, it's Barefoot. over an eight-foot, like, Serbian dude. Yeah. But then, but once again, you know, you put that concept along with something that may or may not work scientifically. We do not know. But then you put a tag lying along with it. Is right. it the shoes? It all ties into the consumer. It's like, oh, it might be. Right. So, you know, you get that. And, you know, you, you see the end result. It doesn't right. happen. But they do have Nikes for you. Yeah. Not to dunk, but it might. Right. And, you know, to shoot a nice, game, calm, right? and collected or jump shot. And right. Or to look, yeah. look nice when he's going out for drinks with friends. Yeah. Yeah, you can always look fly. Yeah. Yeah. We need to check what Woody Harrelson was wearing in the movie. I, I was just going to say, There yeah. you go. Right, right. Exactly. It's a good movie, which I have seen, by right. the way. There you go. Yeah. Uh, now, um, you sure they weren't New Balances that you're wearing? Um, I think, yeah, I'm positive. You sure? Yeah, I'm okay. sure. Right. I'm sure. Right now, I'm wearing Tim's, but um, yeah. I when think you're playing, when you're playing, you're sure they're not New Balances. Those are, those okay. are nice, yeah. Okay. I'm wearing my... I've already my, burned my oh, New yeah, Balances. You, you came yeah. with the, the weapons, man. That's, yeah. Those are legendary. Those are classic. Yeah. I got these on eBay for like 25 bucks. My man. They're cleaned up. Yeah. Don't ever say that again out loud. Back to the Kaepernick thing, um, what did, when, when, so his shoes came out a, like a little bit ago right. and sold out like yeah, basically absolutely. immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get a pair? Um, no, I haven't been gifted a pair yet. Okay. Cause but you have to understand, the shoe that they put it on, it's a Nike Air Force One, and those are the biggest, easiest selling shoes that Nike's ever done in the history of their campaign. So it was an easy win. Right. 
But I mean, they're, they're cool. They got his. They're still his, a wedding in the back. Yeah, it's yeah, dope. It looks it's great. Dope. It's dope. Uh, but they're sold out. Right. And I was doing some research. There, you can get them on StockX, StockX for like two fifty or something like that, two hundred fifty bucks, and like the upsell. Yeah. Yeah. So can you help me get a pair? I got you. Okay. How are we gonna How are we gonna do that? Don't worry about it. Just don't. I, I got, got people. Can we call Can we call Colin directly? Well. Nah, you gotta go hire and Colin to get that. I hired a Colin I got his you. Own to get his shoes. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Just because your name is on the shoe, don't mean you run shit. What's like kind of a if people like shoes but aren't really into it, but want to be? What's your advice for like where to start? What's kind of a good gateway shoe? One, I just mentioned one, uh, Nike Air Force One, and then there's the Adidas Superstar. You're good to go with either one of those. They used to be performance shoes back in the day, but now they've become lifestyle shoes and they're so clean, they're so iconic, they're so classic, you can do anything in them and still be cool. And if you wanted to and had to in the middle of nowhere, have to play ball or hoop or do something athletic, they can still function. So Air Force Ones and Adidas? Superstars. Superstars. Shell toes. You know the shell toes. The shell toes. Yeah, the shell toes. Okay. You're all good. Those two, you're good to go. What are you wearing right now? Air Force Ones. All right, there you go. Um, have you ever thought about why we call them sneakers in the first place? Yeah, they're, um, see, being, being a quote-unquote sneaker historian, and when you, you, when you write books about sneakers, you kind of got to do the research. All right. No, it uh, really, it, um, back, I think it was, I can't give you the exact year, it was in the late 1800s when um, tennis shoes started to become popular. They gave them the name sneakers because they made less noise than dress shoes. Oh, okay. So you could sneak up on people. Okay. That's real. That's not a joke. That's, That's late, late 1800s. Late 1800s, yeah. Being, what'd you say, sneaker historian? Sneaker historian? Sneaker, his, sneaker maybe historian. historian yeah. I, I could consider myself a little bit. Uh, well, yeah. you just quoted something about shoes from the 1800s. So yeah, but I mean, well, look, when, like, when, when, Nike commissions you to, when Nike commissions you to write a book, you kind of got to do a little bit of research to make right. sure you know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I haven't watched a ton of basketball so far this year, okay. but I have noticed that there's a lot of instances where players are wearing shoes that don't match. Yeah. Like I've seen like guys wearing like a, like a fluorescent pink shoe and a fluorescent yellow shoe. Yeah. Do you have any, what's going on with that? Two things. Um, one, the NBA finally dropped the uniformity rule. That means just everything had to kind of at least connect color-wise with what you were wearing with your uniform. Yeah. I mean, because you, you didn't see even like a fluorescent pink shoe yeah, all that yeah. long ago. No, 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 no. I mean, they, would, they, they were trying to, back in the day, get uniforms to match the style of shoes and the colorway of shoes that the players wanted to wear. But once they dropped it, it kind of opened up the floodgate for almost anything to happen. Now, all the shoes are looking like Skittles. Right. <laughs> they're all over the place. But the mismatch situation that you talk about where they were, even the shoes, they, they, they can't be designed as such where they're not mismatched you can get like that's that's the way they come like boxed in oh really yeah yeah, yeah. i assume they had to buy two no 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 uh, nike started this thing called the what ifs a few years ago and once they do a silhouette of a shoe once a year in a crazy only one off colorway and usually they are two different but complementary colors okay you know there, there's a hint of each color in each shoe you'll know that there's a connectivity to it but there's still two different base colors so they started that, and the whole, the whole history behind wearing mismatch is it was supposed to be a symbol of a star. Like back in the day when we were coming up playing basketball, if a guy came on the court and he had mismatch season, he was like, oh, he a superstar. Really? Yeah, seriously, seriously. So you had cat. That was the thing. If you were, if you, if you were, if you no were that idea. dude, that was that was a, you were a sign of a star. So you know, I don't know if it's carry over to this generation. This is why I'm doing it, but historically. Playing ball in the street, that's what it was. Sign okay. of a star. We're mismatched shoes. 
Hey, well, I know what I need to start doing then. Okay, good. Mismatch. Mismatch. Get Tim's and, and some, some other nice Sketches. Yeah. Sketches. Yeah. His, new, his new balance is. <laughs> if someone's like, what's the craziest story about your time at Slam? The craziest story, I mean, if you just had to pick one story out of all the time at Slam there, probably was that we did a photo in 1990, with the 1996 draft class. Stephon Marbury, uh, Antoine Walker, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Steve Nash, and we lined them up. We were in Orlando for the rookie orientation, and we had them all lined up off a brick, off a brick wall, and the title was Ready or Not over of the whole uh, Fuji's Lauryn Hill thing, mm -hmm. and it became kind of iconic as far as like Sam Cooke because it was a gatefold, and Allen Iverson wasn't there for the photo shoot, but it's the greatest story to me of our time at Slam because we did it behind the NBA's back. They had no, they had no uh, we idea. We were on some guerrilla warfare shit as far as photography and used the NBA photographers to do it without the NBA, no, like, because the NBA photographers loved us because they would do all the shoots they would do, they either get picked up in the NBA magazines or picked up in Sports Illustrated or Sport or Sporting, whatever. They were all like, they weren't exciting. With us, we wanted like action shots and we wanted full shots and we, you know, we, wanted to really take that game and give you a feel from a photographic standpoint that you were there. So we wanted different shots and that's what they love to shoot. So over the course of our first couple of years at Slam, the NBA photographers loved like letting us into the studio and like picking shit because we would pick the shit that they like. Mm -hmm. So when it came down to that 96 cover, we had to strategize and they were like, literally, they were like, look, the NBA, like they're, they're like on some like side chick shit with us too. They're like, nobody can know, David Stern can't know, Adam Silver can't, nobody can know, you all are here. We had to register in the hotel that they were, that the players were staying at in different names. This was just to get your cover this shot. Just to get, and here's the deal. They said, tell us the players you want. We had to map out exactly how we wanted this to go. They said, give us the players we want and we'll send them to you. We gave them the names of the players we wanted for the cover. We sat at the bar, Don Morris, Tony Gervino, and I, and mapped out exactly how we were going to shoot this because they told us, you all have six minutes. Twelve players, six minutes. And not just any players. No. Like all first-round draft picks. All like. first-round draft picks. So we had the line. So when they came out, we had to know exactly, you there, you there, you there, stand here, you know, and... And, with, and the players knew what was going on, too? Like, they knew it was going to be for slam? They knew, oh, yeah, they knew it was going to be for slam. They knew it was going to be slam. And Don Morris took that. the shot, and the NBA photographer, I'm not going to say his name, because he's head of the NBA photographer. But he, well, you, you just know. said his position. So so I don't know if he's, I mean, he may be emeritus now. I don't know what he's doing, but whatever. He's high-ranking. No, I'll say, no. Carmen Romanelli was like, okay, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, do this. I was out there with a water bottle, spraying the players down so it looked like they were sweating. We're trying to get it. I mean, we're doing all this shit, and it's like, if you know how hard it is to take a picture with multiple people and somebody's eyes are not closed, yeah. somebody's hair's the right way, all this stuff, six minutes, we got, I think, four shots. And Don nailed it, I think, on the third one, maybe. But it was like, all right, look here, do this. And Kobe had a broken arm, so his arm was in a cast. So we didn't think about that when we were mapping it out. So in the middle of trying to get all these pictures, like, okay, we got to hide Kobe's arm. Kobe, duck your arm behind here. Like, we're trying to do all of this shit in literally six minutes with 12 people and get it done. And like, Conor is like, oh, motherfucker, better hurry up, let's, you know, and we got the shit, the shit, I don't know how we got, we got one shot 
and all of that shit in six minutes, and they all went, and it wound up working. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's 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 and, probably and sure. any idea how the NBA felt once they came out? Did, um, they, did they know you were using their photographers? Well, we credited. I think because I think Don took the shot, but Carmen Romanelli helped set it up, and I think he may have. I forgot how it worked, but we hear Carmen's name. We put the creative director of the magazine up front and gave him credit. Carmen didn't care. He was good. He wasn't about credit. Nah, I mean, at that point, no. Nah, when you're that good, you know, Carmen's like, no. Nah. And then we wound up, I think they wound up understanding that it's better to work with us than to work against us. Right. Um, and Slam actually started taking money from the NBA in their magazines because Nike thought we were the cooler, you know, shoe companies thought we were the cooler brand. So while they were used to advertise, like, say, take $5,000 in this issue, they were like, okay, and uh, we're doing $2,000 with you, and you know, they do $5,000 with us. And they're like, oh shit. So the NBA, I think over the years, realized, you know what, why fight they, these guys? Yeah, they embraced it. Yeah, they embraced it. Because it was, I mean, it was constructive. It was about the culture. It wasn't, there was nothing. Right, exactly. And you know, hey man, change is not easy. Change is not hard, you know, and it's, you know, when you realize there's a big enough pie for everybody to successfully exist, then you stop looking at other things as competitors. And I think it took the NBA a while to look at us as non-competitors. And, you know, Red God rest in peace to David Stern, but, you know, we weren't necessarily David Stern's cup of tea. That's right. not how he likes to roll. He's, he's very, very corporate. Right. We weren't corporate. You know, but just as the NBA was changing and the players were changing and styles were changing, you know, it took him as commissioner a while to, like, turn around to that because he was very successful at being corporate. And that's fine. So we were right. just an uncorporate entity in the business at that time. And it just took a while to accept. But the NBA photographers knew that from the very beginning and they loved it. So it made it easier for us to get in. And it, it seems like Slam's still doing pretty well. Yeah, they have, yeah, they have a huge good. social yeah, presence. Yeah, yeah, they're doing well. I mean, not I'm every magazine not every magazine can say that. No, nah, not every magazine. Say, and most you know, can't. Most can't. You know, you look, you know magazines, they, they you know, what is the rate? They're, they say 600 magazines globally are launched every year and like a little under 2% last for over a year. It's like marriage. Yeah. <laughs> um, NBL All-Star Game is coming to Chicago. Mm -hmm. What do you have planned? Working. I work the whole time. Every All-Star Game I work. Can we, tag, can we tag along? Yeah. I ain't paying you shit, but yeah, you I don't want along. money. <laughs> I just want the experience. All right, cool, cool. I, I don't want, want money, but I'll take the right, experience right, too. Hey, yeah. hey. There, there's been a lot of headlines lately that NBA ratings are down this year. Mm -hmm. um, what needs to happen to fix that? Um, in, in three words or less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not as many players need to get healthy. You know, that's one. Um, and I, th I, think, I think players need to be healthy. That's all. I think players need to be There's healthy. There's a lot of talk about, like, people jumping teams. There's already, you know, talk about Giannis eventually leaving the Bucks. Yeah. Like, does, that, does that hurt? I don't think so. Not in the moment. Because I, I don't think people would not watch Giannis right now based on where he may be playing next year. I don't, you know, I don't think that'll happen. And I think the numbers will come up once the playoffs start, you know. What are some current interesting NBA storylines? There's a bunch. I think the top ones I go with, uh, hell shit, Zion coming back. <laughs> you know, he's about to, you know, it's about to be a Zion's world for a hot second. And to see what happens with the Pelicans um, once he gets back, if they're going to be one of those teams that starts challenging in the West, we have to watch and pay attention to. Um, the other ones, I think, are, um, are the Lakers and the Bucks really as good as their record says that they are? What do you I, think? I think, yes, barring injury to the Lakers, I think no with Milwaukee come playoff time. What is your uh, NBA Finals prediction? 
I'm going to sound crazy by saying this. Uh, Lakers, Boston. That's not that crazy. I thought you were going to say the Bulls. That would be oh, crazy. hell no, 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 no. I said the answer was crazy. I didn't say I was crazy. How do, yeah, right, right, what right, do we right. Have, What do we have to do to fix the Bulls? Sell the team. It's really quick. Think that's ever going to happen? Um, if the fans have the power and use their power to, for good to force Reinsdorf. Which means what? Stop going to games? Yeah, well, stop investing, yeah. And, and stop making them relevant. Stop making them a conversation. Us, stop talking about them. The minute you become irrelevant, I retract you start my losing season, money. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just putting ass in the seats. It's not just not going to the United Center. It's like we don't invest in their merchandise. We don't invest in their, t- you know, watching them on television. We don't talk about them in barbershops. You know, I hate to say it, but the, you, in order for that to happen, the Bulls have to be a non-motherfucking factor. They have that commercial, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, where there's people in a barbershop and there's a Bulls game on and then they like cut to, but they're not even, even in the commercial, they're not even talking right, about Right, 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 right. But that's what has to happen. That's the bottom line. And then, you know, the fans can like, look, man, until you sell this team, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not going back in. And we've seen what ownership change can do. Right. We saw it with the Blackhawks, we saw it with the Cubs. Right. So the, bear, the Bears and the Bulls are the two ones left, hopefully. Yeah. It'll recognize. You and I, in the past, have talked at times about, about race. Yeah. Um, talking about going, like sport, going to sports games, like going, going to games yeah. at like Wrigley Field or United Center or at Soldier Field. I'm 43, and this just hit me the other day. Not the other day. A couple years ago. I'm a white guy. I go to the game, I take an Uber. The Uber's driven either oftentimes by a black guy or by a red, like, like someone from a different country. I go to the game, the person at the front like, taking my ticket is a minority. The person I order my concessions from is a minority and I sit in the seats and all the, pe- all the people around me are white people. Mm-hmm. How should, like, I don't necessarily have a question as much as that's an observation. Yeah. What, what do we do to, like, change that? What do we do to, like, mix it up more so, like... Well, you guess this, this is a straight, down-the-road thing on economics. The people you're dealing with that are minorities are trying to make money. The people you see at the sport spend money. That's what it boils down to. If you leave the stands and go into the front offices, it's probably whiter than the stands. Right. You know what I'm saying? But you're seeing people on their jobs doing their things, and, you know, you could go through the race line and say, you know... The, the marginal jobs or the disposable jobs, you know, or the, or the jobs that, you know, don't pay a certain amount of money are where I'm going to run into minorities in this country at. But the people that have money, that disposable income, that are making a certain amount of money, they can afford to go to games during the middle of the day. The people that are up in those seats, you know I mean, you know, up, up in, the, in the boxes, you know, and got their offices at that stadium and all that, they're making a lot more money so they don't have to drive Uber. They make a lot of money so they don't have to like sell tickets or sell food or do us any other. So, you know, there's a racial divide economically in this country that is very stark. So what do we do? Where do we start? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, if you don't know, look, no, 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 We've been starting since we set foot here. So you're asking the black person, where do we start? We started a long time ago. You need to ask your people, where do y'all start? Because we started They're not a long know. time ago. What, what are, oh, you all know. You all just don't want to. So. Because, because 
in wanting to do that, in, in wanting to really deal with equality down the line where it's really equality, like it's, it's, it's a shared space, it's relinquishing power. And that's the one thing white America is never going to do and never wants to do is relinquish their power to anybody. That's not going to happen. So until there comes a start where it's like, you know what, let's share our power. Because in order to have true fairness and equality that we talk about in this country, never had that, we have to relinquish some of this power. Until that happens, then none of this is going to happen. But trust me, we, every minority in this country has started right. a long time. The minute we set foot here, whether we came here by our own choice or whether somebody else brought us here, we started the minute we got here. It seems like now like most, most racially-based conversations I'm a part of happen on social media. They don't happen in person. That's the problem with social media. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with social media. <laughs> so, like, so, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm the white guy asking this question when, like, theoretically, the white guys have the answers, or at least part of it. Like, yeah, how do you? In my mind, I could be wrong, but that's how I see it. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I can only write. How how do we? How do you think we foster? It's just it's so much more comfortable to like, as a white guy, walk through, just walk down the street in my you know in my little white bubble and not have these kind of conversations. Right. Where do we start? How do we do it? I mean, I'm not, well, I'm you, not asking you. No, no, I, answer, I get what but, you're saying, but, but if, do you want change to come from the, I'm not asking you specifically, I'm, I'm you know, get, being very generalistic here. Do you want change to come because of the conversation or do you want to have a conversation for conversation's sake? The one thing I've run into with a lot of white individuals that when we have discussions about race, is always about where do we start the dialogue? And I'm like, what do you want out of the dialogue? We've, right. been, you know, we've been here for 400 years. We've been talking about this for 400 years. We've been asking for change for 400 years. Every other minority that comes over here is asking for change. So we've had, we're having these dialogues. We're, we're talking. We're, we're starting this conversation. And I'm not saying that white America is not listening. You can but, say that. I think no, that's no, no, that's... no I, think I think they're listening. But they don't want the actual change to come. They just want the dialogue. So if you want to talk for the sake of talking, hey, we could do that. Right. But to have a conversation and want to really change, that's a whole different thing. And that's not on us because we're the ones that want change. Right. I saw so many MLK Day advertisements and posts, and I feel like they all missed the mark. It's like Martin Luther King did not exist, so there can be a 15% sale on mattresses. You know? Like he, <laughs> but, it is, but it is nice. It is nice because to get of him, the, we get the 50%. Mattress, you, can, you, yeah. know, you can wait till MLK Day to get a 50% discount. I get that. 15? You said 50? 15. 15. Depends no. on where you go. 25 yeah. is nice. Yeah. But like, I feel like so many people, and this is on, you know, this is the White Caucus, so many people miss the mark when it comes to what that conversation should be about. Right, but, is, but, but you're asking a country that celebrates holidays in a different, celebrates all holidays for something totally against what they mean. Right. You know, they have sales for Easter. They have sales for Christmas. We're not sitting around speaking about, you know, the birth of Christ and, you right. know, what that means to the world and all this, that, and the other. We're trying to sell mattresses, you know, his birthday. So right. it's not like Dr. King is any different. This is the way they treat holidays here in this country. We don't go back and get to the root of why we're supposed to celebrate and spend this day doing this. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's not indicative of, it's not an indictment on Dr. King and this country on Dr. No. King. It's just how we it's, treat holidays. What I think should have been the, you know, what was missing the mark is why we're not having a conversation about the NFL and the NHL 
not acknowledging Dr. King when they're still functioning on his birthday. Just because the NBA is 80% black doesn't mean that they should be the only sport right. in America that celebrates his birthday. 100% for sure, yeah. You know, because Dr. King didn't sit out here and do this only for black folks. You know, he did it for every minority just for America. He wanted us to, like, have some type of equal footing, to have that conversation that we're talking about. Right. To, so that we can live, you know, on this type of land equally. That's what he was all about. So... When he gets into sports, you see the NBA celebrating. It's Dr. King Day. We have Dr. They celebrate, you know, and honor him in a way where at least his presence is felt. The NHL isn't, you know, even though there's, they have, you know, teams in Canada, it's still an American sport. Sure. Why are they off the hook? Why are, we, why are we pushing them? How come you all don't acknowledge it? The NFL had their damn super, you know, Sunday, a day before his holiday. They do nothing. Right. Nothing to acknowledge this man. So, to be fair, some of those athletes probably did buy mattresses for the 25% <laughs> off from under the King. That's so, true, too. Yeah. That's true, too. Allen Iverson in his prime was better than Derrick Rose in his prime. True. Two-parter. LeBron versus Jordan is a tired argument, too, because Mark Madsen is the greatest of all time. False. Not because of that, but because Brian Scalabini is better than Mark Matson. Okay, gotcha. Basketball players who dominated in the 80s and 90s would dominate the same way today. True. The current Bulls would be better if they had better players. False. They wouldn't be better if they had better players? False. Okay. The current Bulls would be better if they had better coaches. Hmm... That's, that's true, but it's, it's only, it's a half true. Half it's true. a half true. They need, they need a player development program. Okay. And I don't know if that falls in line with the coaching situation. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Gar packs aren't as bad as their, at their jobs as everyone thinks they are. They aren't as bad. Uh, that is, that's true. Okay. The current demise of the Warriors is bad for basketball. True. NBA ratings are down because the league is soft. False. Michael Jordan would have taken load management, load management days if he played in this era. At what age? 32. True, he would have taken. He would have taken? He would have taken. Okay, but he wouldn't have at 28? No, hell no, not at all. Okay. Not at all, not at all. Um, the greatest NBA coach of all time is Phil Jackson. Oh, my God. False. I should have said that a lot quicker. False. 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 Who is? Chuck Daly. 